read it before, you need to go and read it carefully for yourself. A whole chapter that you need to read carefully, this is one paragraph from that chapter in the book Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 475. The Lord would have his people bury political questions. On these themes, silence is eloquence. Christ calls upon his followers to come into unity on the pure gospel principles which are plainly revealed in the word of God. We cannot with safety vote for political parties, for we do not know whom we are voting for. We cannot with safety take part in any political schemes. We cannot labor to please men who will use their influence to repress religious liberty and to set in operation oppressive measures to lead or compel their fellow men to keep Sunday as the Sabbath. The people of God, listen carefully now, are not to vote to place such men in office. For when they do this, they are partakers with them of the sins which they commit while in office. It's a very, very important statement that we tend to overlook when we get caught up in the excitement and the activities of who's the best candidate for this position, that position, or whatever it is. Notice she does not say we should not vote. She does say we cannot with safety vote for political parties. We should not, that we should bury political questions. My friends, no matter where our human citizenship resides, no matter where our human loyalties are, we are citizens of heaven, and no human government, even as good a government as the United States of America has been for 200 years, is to, be ha is to have our primary loyalty. So I would suggest we think carefully about our political activities during a year as eventful as this year promises to be, with all kinds of things exploding around us. So Christian Education, page 475. Uh, I do have a few, not many, a few extra copies of this. If you would like to have one, ask me later. Now, again, I'm going to add a few announcements to what uh, Norman uh, already told you. The program is, is as, you will find, ha, uh, as he has announced it to you. Matthew's presentation will be a new presentation, a different one than he did here last time. So his short presentation will be new. Um, we will have available our CDs, DVDs, books, etc. available for your perusal after sundown, and you are welcome to, uh, to look at those at your leisure. In addition to that, I always bring with me little booklets, a number of them from Amazing Facts and some other ones, uh, some that uh, greatcontroversy.org has been printing in the last uh, year or two. And so I bring with me some of those little booklets. If you would like some of these to take home, study for yourself, extra material for your own personal study, just ask me at any time today, and I will be delighted to share these with you. Uh, it is all I ask is that you desire them enough to ask for them. And lastly, if you would like to probe a little farther, and if you haven't come across my website, my website is available. It is not an interactive website. It is a study website available for your study, downloading of materials, etc. Most of my materials that I present are on that. What I do this afternoon is not on that website. Or is it?
It is, isn't it? Yeah, I forget what's on there and what is not. Yes, most of my materials is on the website, are on the website, and you're welcome to uh, get them for yourself and study them over again if you want to, or new material. The new thing, the brand new thing that I have just put on the website is a Bible study course in, on the basic issues that I covered here four years ago, you tell me, uh, that we covered on the issues of the nature of sin, the nature of Christ, and the nature of perfection. And I put this into the kind of Bible study course that we're familiar with from Voice of Prophecy, you know, Amazing Facts, etc., where you can read the, the question, there is a Bible text and a place for you to answer, standard Bible study format. So if you would like to review or go into this for the first time on these issues, if you've not heard my presentation on the basic gospel issues, that would be a good way to do it. So that Bible study course is available on my website. As I said last night, uh, the material we're covering this weekend is more advanced material than that basic series. Uh, we're now moving into the upper echelons of trying to understand righteousness by faith, dealing with the more subtle issues sometimes that are not easily seen and understood. Okay, I think that covers our announcements, and we're ready to begin. The te- oh, thank you very much. <laughs> it would help, wouldn't it? DennisPreeby.com. Uh, make sure you spell it right or you'll be in trouble. DennisPreeby.com is my website. Now, before we get into current issues in justification, we're going to take a brief 10-minute or so review of what justification is. Because if we do not know what it is, we will not be able to figure out where there is a problem that is coming from another direction. Just like, how do you figure out counterfeit money? You know the genuine. And then you can see the counterfeit more easily. So we're going to look first at what justification is. And so we're going to start with what is up on the board right here. Romans 4, verses 6 to 8. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Notice the word impute saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Okay? So the imputing of righteousness is forgiveness of sin and covering of sin. Two ways of saying the same thing. Iniquities are forgiven and sins are covered. Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1070, puts it this way. As the penitent sinner, contrite before God, discerns Christ's atonement in his behalf and accepts this atonement as his only hope in this life and the future life, his sins are pardoned. That's the key. Sins forgiven and sins pardoned. This is justification by faith. Pardon and justification are one and the same thing. There's a nice, simple way of saying it. Through faith, the believer passes from the position of a rebel, a child of sin and Satan, to the position of a loyal subject of Christ Jesus, not because of an inherent goodness, but because Christ receives him as his child by adoption. Adoption. What is an adoption? Parents fill out legal papers to change the legal standing of the child to be part of their family. Legal standing. Page 1071, 
The grace of Christ is freely to justify the sinner without merit or claim on his part. Justification is a full, complete pardon of sin. The moment a sinner accepts Christ by faith, that moment he is pardoned. The the righteousness of Christ is imputed to him, and he is no more to doubt God's forgiving grace. So you catch the phrasing of the words as we've gone through this. Forgiveness, pardon, uh, Uh, imputed. All of these are legal words. This a legal statement of fact. We are no longer in the family of Satan. We have been adopted into the family of Jesus Christ and we are legal members of his family. There is definitely a legal aspect to justification. It is a statement that God makes and he and he, and, he, and, he, and he pardons us from all our sins. All right. That is understood by just about all Christians. This is not very much in doubt throughout Christianity. What is coming next is the issue that is not well understood by Christians. Is there also, in addition to the legal pronouncement of our pardon and acceptance by God, an experiential internal aspect to justification, something that happens not on the books of heaven only, but in my heart, in my life, in my mind. Is there a change that takes place inwardly in addition to being accepted outwardly, legally, as a child of God? Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. And again, notice the sequence of events very carefully as we go through this passage. It's talking about salvation, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. All right, there's our subject indicator. He saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the process of salvation that is being described here is going to be telling us how we are justified, how we stand justified, righteous. The words justified and righteous are the same in the New Testament. How we stand righteous before God. And notice how that is done by the washing of regeneration. This washing is not the baptism washing. This washing is the heart washing in which the heart is made new, cleansed. A new heart will I put within you. We'll read some of those statements a little later. The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, that being justified by His grace. Justification includes regeneration, which is regenerating the old, transplanting the new and renewing of the Holy Ghost. This is the part which is denied by most of Christianity. They say, no, that is not part of justification. That makes it internal. That makes it human works. That makes it legalism. So watch carefully as we go through this section, which is why I put a number of statements on here, because this is not accepted by most of Christianity. This part is legal justification experiential is put off into sanctification by most of Christianity 
All right, so here we have the first text. The next one on there doesn't use the word justification at all. You know what this one is. John 3, 3 is Jesus' famous discourse with Nicodemus. Doesn't use the word justification, but it says something crucially important right here. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, new birth, necessary for salvation. You cannot be part of God's family. You will not live eternally unless you are born again. Now, Jesus does not use the terms justification and sanctification. Paul uses those terms. And so some people are saying, well, new birth must be different than justification. No, it's just two different writers, speakers, authors, using different ways to to say the same thing. And here he's saying, without the new birth, there is no salvation. And Paul is saying, without justification, there is no salvation. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but. So both of them are saying the same thing using different terminology. And again, the new birth is denied as a part of justification by most of Christianity. That also is put into sanctification later. All that is required for most of Christianity to be saved is believe on Jesus Christ and be forgiven of your sins legally. Anything internally, anything experientially is put off into sanctification by most of Christianity. Well, let's find out. Let's find out what the spirit of prophecy says on this subject. Mount of Blessing, 114. Listen very carefully. God's forgiveness. Now, what is forgiveness? It is his legal justification. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. That means it is a judicial act, but not only that. That's the key. It is that, but it's more. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness. That's over here, forgiveness. When he prayed, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Isn't that exactly what Titus is saying that we just read? A new spirit, a right spirit, renewing by the Holy Spirit. So notice very carefully here. Forgiveness, yes. Legal, yes. But much more than that is encompassed in God's forgiveness. Forgiveness is more than a legal act. The next statement is uh, Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 394. Oh, three, yes, 394. Did I make a mistake there? Yeah, it should be 364. Erase your notes. Sorry. Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 364. Genuine faith appropriates the righteousness of Christ, and the sinner is made an overcomer with Christ, for he is made a partaker of the divine nature, and thus divinity and humanity are combined. 
The two of them coming together. Oh, yes, and there is 394, so I didn't make a mistake. I just left one out. So add that to it. Right. In ourselves, we are sinners, but in Christ, we are righteous. Having, now notice the next words, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to have to tell you, Ellen White is being very theologically uh, unsound right there. Uh, the theologians will say, you can't use all those words for the same thing. That is not the way it's, been, it's to be done. Notice what she said. She said, having made us righteous, that's supposed to be uh, over in sanctification, through the imputed righteousness of Christ, that's supposed to be over in legal justification. God pronounces us just, that's over here in legal. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So she uses terms that are supposedly incompatible. But I think she knew what she was doing. I don't think she was so illiterate theologically that she was totally unaware of what was going on. Notice again it says, having made us righteous with this prospect, with this process already done, then by the imputed righteousness of Christ, then God pronounces us just. Without the making, there's no pronouncing. In other words, God does not deal in legal fiction. He does not pronounce us righteous when we are totally unrighteous. He does not put his robe of righteousness over our filthy sins and then says, well, you're righteous because I count you that way. That's what Ellen White is trying to say. Christ's Object Lessons 163. As the sinner, drawn by the power of Christ, approaches the uplifted cross and prostrates himself before it. Now, this is a sinner coming to Jesus for the first time. There is a new creation a new heart is given him. That's all about this now, experientially. He becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. God himself is the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. All part of justification, not sanctification. The new creation, the new heart, the new creature, all part of justification. Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1098. By receiving his imputed righteousness, all right, the legal righteousness here, through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And again, theologians say, no, you can't put the two together. They are two separate entities. You are righteous and you are saved here. Later on comes the transforming power, but not according to Ellen White. Having, well, I'm saying it again, by receiving his imputed righteousness, through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like Him. The image of Christ is cherished, and it captivates the whole being. One more. Review and Heralds, August 19, 1890. To be pardoned in the way that Christ pardons is not only to be forgiven. So she's talking about pardon, and she's saying pardon includes more than forgiveness. But to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. The Lord says, A new heart will I give unto thee. The image of Christ is to be stamped upon the very mind, heart, and soul. I could read a lot more, but I think you've got the picture. For Ellen White, justification is not at all limited to legal pardon of sins. It is that, 
But it is so much more than that. It is an experiential change in our lives, our attitudes, our value systems. God puts a new heart in us. He takes the stony heart out and puts a heart of flesh in, and He takes total control by His Holy Spirit. And then we become righteous. He pronounces us just. The last one down here, Testimonies to Ministers, 91 and 92. I put there because... um, This is what Ellen White said about the message of Jones and Wagoner, which we referred to this morning. The Lord, in his great mercy, sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagoner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Now notice, it, this message, presented justification by through faith in the surety. So the message is justification, she says. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ. Many had lost sight of Jesus. And then she says, All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. And again, our theological friends will say, No, you can't put imparting with justification. Imparting belongs with sanctification, and imputing belongs to justification. But Ellen White is not concerned with those niceties of theological distinction. She says, imparting the priceless gift of his righteousness is justification. Sharing. Imputing is writing on a a piece of paper. You're credited. Imparting is actually giving. It is sharing. It is being that. And then she says, this is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message. So what is the third angel's message? Justification, which is imparting righteousness. That's how she phrased it. Well, exactly what did those messengers say about justification? Wagoner said it so simply. To justify means to make righteous or to show one to be righteous. I only wish you could read enough statements by the official definers of justification to know to have to know how much out of step that sentence is that step is totally wrong by any of those who set out to define justification read the textbooks read the statements on justification it will never mention making righteous it will always mention declaring righteous pronouncing righteous stating righteous but never never making righteous Wagoner was totally out of step by saying to justify means to make righteous or to show one to be righteous. And then he said, let us first have an object lesson on justification or the imparting of righteousness. And again, he did it. He just walked himself right out of the theological circles at that point. Justification is the imparting of righteousness. But I think, you decide for yourself, I think Wagoner was totally in harmony with both the spirit of prophecy and the Bible in saying that. That's what I believe justification by faith to be. All right, that's our 10 or 15 minute excursus into what is legal and what is experiential in justification. Two aspects of one process by which God forgives us of our sins. He pronounces us, he makes us at the same time as part of the same process. Now, we're going to go into certain issues that have come up in justification. 
And I'm going to be sharing with you, as I did last night, some statements from various leaders and authorities in the Seventh-day Adventist Church on this subject. This one comes from a book uh, published a few years ago entitled, We Still Believe, written by Elder Robert Falkenberg, then president of the General Conference. He says, We fall into insecurity when we understand the gospel as conditional good news as if salvation were like a game of tag. So, as we discussed last night, one of the basic issues that is being discussed right now is whether justification is conditional. Are there conditions to justification, or is it unconditional? Unconditional means I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I ask Him to forgive my sins, He pronounces me righteous unconditionally. The future is not an issue. What I do in the future is not an issue. The only way I can lose that is by rejecting Jesus Christ. And then I lose my salvation. But no conditions in that. And we'll see what that means in a minute. All right? Another statement is, we can fall into the ditch of conditional justification and sacrifice the peace of mind that is born of assurance in Christ. The ditch of conditional justification. He said, I believed once in conditional justification based on human forgiveness, which is legalism. And as I said last night, watch the words that are put together. Human forgiveness. Those two words are totally incompatible. There is no such thing as human forgiveness. Uh, there is human repentance. There is human confession. But there is never human forgiveness. It is all only divine forgiveness or it isn't forgiveness at all. So that based on human forgiveness, which is legalism. And then here is where the rubber begins to hit the road, unfortunately. Does our obedience contribute to our salvation or our lack of obedience contribute to our loss? No. Our obedience does not contribute. I am not saved because I heed the seventh-day Sabbath. Neither am I lost if I don't keep the Sabbath. And now the rubber begins to come down on the road in this understanding of legal justification. We will all agree with the first part of that, that Sabbath-keeping or obedience will not justify us, not by works of righteousness. And then we ask the next question, will disobedience to a clear conviction of conscience when the Holy Spirit convicts us of truth, will it cost us our salvation? And this gospel says, well, no, you're legally declared righteous. There are no conditions to justification. It is unconditional. The Sabbath does not come into the picture for your justification. And that's where this uh, statement comes from. He said it again in a different way. If we consider Sabbath-keeping a requirement for salvation, we have turned the commandment on its head. Sabbath-keeping is not a requirement for salvation. And I find that interesting because um, is, um, there are commandments, as you know. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Are they also not requirements for salvation? We're not asking the cause. We're not asking the question, are they causes of salvation? We're asking, are they requirements of salvation? Are they conditions of salvation? And now we're, say, we're hearing the answer, no. Sabbath-keeping is not a requirement for salvation. 
This one from a um, former president of the Arizona Conference. His name is Herman Bauman, retired now. I grew up believing that besides accepting Jesus as my Savior, I also had to keep the Sabbath if I wanted to be saved. I had the clear conviction that if I failed to keep it, I would be lost. I thank God, though, that as I had the privilege of studying under some of the great Seventh-day Adventist scholars, such as Kubo and Heppenstall, the message of God's abundant grace became clearly and firmly established in my thinking and in my theology. So now he has come to the view that he doesn't have to keep the Sabbath to be saved. He does it for different reasons. He finally says, we accept Jesus Christ as Savior. It's all that counts. Praise God. We accept Jesus Christ as Savior. There are no further conditions to salvation. Therefore, we remain in standing. We're going to see as we go farther in the second presentation today how deeply this gets into the issue of how we stand saved or lost on a day-by-day -day basis. But that will wait for its further discussion later. Right now, here is another one. This one from the past editor of Ministry Magazine, David Newman, writing as the editor of the magazine in, uh, in Ministry Magazine. It is easy to slip into the thinking that if you do not keep the seventh day as the Sabbath, you will be lost. It is easy to slip into that thinking, he says, and he thinks that thinking is wrong. I am accepted by God totally because of the perfection of another person, the obedience of another person. I am accepted, notice, because of the obedience of another person. Justification is not a transformation of nature. It does not impart righteousness. Remember I said earlier that that phrase is so strong in those who believe in a different gospel? You are saved not because you are righteous or even because you are converted. John 3.3 is not part of the saving process. It's a result of the saving process in this gospel. You are saved, not because you are righteous or even because you are converted, but because through faith you place your trust, your dependence in Jesus Christ. God transforms you through the new birth experience, part of sanctification. I'm still reading, remember. God transforms you through the new birth experience, part of sanctification, erasing all of this and taking it off into sanctification so that you possess the will to live a holy life. The growth in Christ that begins here is the work of a lifetime never fully realized in this life. So the new birth experience, the new heart experience, the transformed life experience begins not in justification but in sanctification and it is never complete in this life never fully realized. The believer keeps God's rules only as a response to already having been justified, never as the cause or part of the cause of that justification, which we will agree with. Now, here is the interesting little hitch that begins to develop as a result of this, because all of this is excluded to another side. Why is that? As you've heard me say, it all comes back to one little word with three letters. The word is sin. What is sin? It all boils down to that. Every issue on justification, every issue on sanctification, every issue on perfection, every issue on the nature of Christ, all boils down to what is sin. When that is settled, 
then we know what all the rest of the parts of the puzzle are. Here is what he says. Sin can be classified as sin in capital letters and sin in small letters. All right, now we have an interesting dichotomy here. Sin, the capital letters, is the ruptured relationship you and I have with God from birth. So what is the big sin for which we are guilty for, responsible for, condemned for, lost for? It is our state of being. It is the way we are. It is our human condition. It is our fallen nature. It is our humanity. We are sin by nature. Can't do anything about your nature. Can't change your, your heredity. Can't change your parents. And therefore, you can't change your sin. You are automatically sinners because of your state of birth. And then he has an interesting little statement. You may have heard this before. The sin of Adam and Eve was not the taking and eating of the forbidden fruit. They had sinned before they took the fruit. Aha! Now we come to something interesting. God said, In the day you eat you will die. And now we're hearing, before you eat, you're dead. Now we understand that I'm a mature human being. I don't have to depend on him for everything. Well, I'll explore a little bit on my own. And then... Someone began talking to her. And that was strange because it wasn't a person. It wasn't an angel. It wasn't Jesus Christ. She knew all about that. It was this animal up in a tree, the most beautiful animal apparently in those early days. And now she began to be curious, you see. And he's saying that's when she sinned. Sounds logical, sounds reasonable, except you get back to one simple point. Did God say that? He said, in the day you eat that fruit, then you die. That is your sin. The eating of the fruit. You see, even the angels in heaven did some things they should not have done. They listened to Lucifer. We are told, again by the pen of inspiration, that about half of the angels were listening to Lucifer and persuaded of the rightness of his cause at first until God held the great councils and explained things to the angels that apparently had no need for explaining before that time. And then we read that one-third of the angels followed Satan, Lucifer. Well, that meant a sixth of the angels decided one way, thought it over, and decided the opposite way. And even the angels in heaven who stayed there, the loyal ones, the two-thirds, for 4,000 years had some uh, sympathy for Satan and his cause, only lost when Jesus Christ died on the cross. So they had some rethinking to do. So you see, there are things that are done by sinless beings that are not always wise. But that's not sin. It's a mistake. It's an error. It's a misjudgment. You can even say it's imperfect. 
But sin is the transgression of the law. When God says, remember the Sabbath day, and we knowing and are convicted of the Sabbath and reject the Sabbath day, that's sin. It is not sin to keep the wrong day when we don't know that it's the wrong day. It may be a sin of ignorance, but not a sin for which we are lost, condemned, or guilty. And so the issue very clearly is sin is the transgression of law when it is known and when conviction comes to the heart. Yes, Eve made a mistake. She went beyond what she should have done. But that's not sin until it is a defiant, rebellious rejection of a commandment of God, known in the heart, conviction in the heart. And so I am going to suggest that although this sounds reasonable, this sounds logical, this too is an addition to Scripture, saying more than what Scripture says. They had sinned before they took the fruit. They broke their dependent relationship with God. This is when sin took place. When sin happens, it leads to sin, the act of taking the fruit. So what Adam and Eve did was just this little sin, taking the fruit. The real sin was something that happened before that. Now, how does that relate to us? Why did he go to all this trouble to explain that about Adam and Eve? Because he's saying the same thing happens to us. We sin before we sin. Okay? We sin before we sin is what he's saying. How do we sin? Big capital letters. Get yourself born and you're a sinner going to hell. That's what he's saying. We sin by being born. And then we do acts of sin. We should put this here as acts of sin. Or choices of sin. I like the word choice better than act. So these are the things that we do because we are already this. When we lose our temper, it's just an expression of our fallen nature. We are lost because of our fallen nature, not because of our losing of temper. When we cheat, lie, steal, commit adultery, those are not the sins that condemn us. The sin that condemns us is the sin of having the propensity or the tendency within us to do that in the first place. That is our sin according to this understanding of the gospel and righteousness by faith. Now, here's how he continues. Justification, all right, we're back to justification, takes care of sin, the relationship problem. So now, our sin is forgiven. Justification. We are justified, legally justified. This is out of the picture. We are no longer sinners before God. We have been forgiven. Justification takes care of sin, the relationship problem. Sanctification takes care of this sin, the behavior problem. So this is not an issue that has dealt with in justification at all. You are forgiven. You are righteous even though you are still sinning, losing your temper, cheating, lying, stealing, you are still righteous because this has been taken care of and this is a sanctification issue. Along with all of this, this is a sanctification issue and remember, we already read, it's never complete in this life. So you will always be sinning in some way or other by your acts and your choices, because sanctification is never complete. While justification takes care of your birth problem, your, your sin problem, this, the capital letter problem. He continues now. The Christian will fall and stumble on his way to full perfection in Christ. Guaranteed. It's not a matter of if or when. 
the Christian will. God views these sins, these sins right here, as part of the maturing process. And the person does not come under condemnation. So when you lie, when you cheat, when you steal, that's the way of sanctification. You learn by these things. It's a learning process. And you do not come under condemnation. You don't go back into any state of saying, Lord, I have blown it. I, I have messed my life up. I am sorry. I need to be re-justified. You don't have to do any of that. You've already been legally justified. Your sin state has been taken care of. The sins in your life are just maturing process sins. And they are beneficial to us. They are falling, he says. They are sinning. Not because they have a broken relationship with God. Not because they refuse to be dependent, but because they are immature, ignorant, wrestling with addictions, wanting desperately to grow up into Him. Notice that carefully. You have a relationship. I'm going to rephrase it and put it in positive here. You have a relationship with God. You are dependent. And at the same time, you're addicted to whatever. All kinds of addictions, aren't there? And you are wanting to grow up into Him but you're still addicted. So you can have a genuine relationship with God, you can have a dependent relationship with God, and still be totally addicted to a sin in your life that is ongoing and you can't get rid of, seemingly. And then he uses David as his prime example. When God looked at the life of David through the eyes of Jesus, he saw only a perfect person. David committed some awful sins, his behavior was despicable, but he lived a repentant life. He wanted to be always dependent on God. Hmm. I will agree on one thing. I think David always wanted to be dependent on God. He was a man after God's own heart. He sincerely desired to do God's will. We find that all through his life. But he didn't always carry out that will on one or two prime occasions that we know of. I'm asking a simple question here. When David was sitting in his um, castle room, after he had committed his sin with Bathsheba, trying desperately to figure out how he could cover up this thing, because Uriah wouldn't cooperate, would he? He had it all set up to make sure that this thing could be hidden away and everybody would think that the baby was Uriah's from the beginning. And here Uriah coming back from a special leave from the, from the field would not fall into, say, into David's trap. He didn't even know what David's trap was. All he said was, while my buddies are out there in the field, I'm not going to have the comforts of my wife. And so he slept on the floor in the king's palace. He wouldn't even go home with his wife. And David said, oh, no, what's happening now? What am I going to do? This has got to be covered up. And you know the next step. He sat in his upper room and he plotted the murder of one of his most loyal soldiers so he could have his wife and cover up his sin. Is that living a repentant life, my friends? Or is that exactly the opposite of any repentance that the Bible ever even comes close to? That's defiance. That is rebellion in a man after God's own heart. And then he continues, If David had been lost, it would not have been because of his adultery or committing of murder. Those are just sins, see? This is David Newman, past editor of Ministry Magazine. 
if David had been lost, it would not have been because of his adultery or committing of murder. He would be lost because he did not keep a faith, trust, dependent relationship with God because he had first committed sin. In other words, this sin right here. If he rejected Jesus Christ, well, it wasn't Jesus Christ, it was God then. If he rejected God, if he turned his back on God and walked away from God, then he would be lost because then this covering of justification would be removed. And he would slip back into the state of sin in which he was born. But as long as he believed in God, as long as he went to the temple, as long as he said, I want to do your will, he was covered by justification and his state of sin was forgiven and his acts of sin were, were, did not bring him into condemnation. That's this theology. Sin is this state covered by this part of righteousness by faith. Legal righteousness covers the state of sin in which we are born is what he is saying. And that's why this theory cannot be classified as once saved, always saved. No, it is once saved, almost always saved. It is the kissing cousin of the good old Baptist theology that some of us have, have met here and there. Yes, we're saved. We can be lost. Yes, that's possible. We can make a choice. We can reject Jesus Christ. But until we turn our backs on Jesus Christ, we are saved. And that's why we read statements like Sabbath keeping is not a requirement for salvation and it will not cause us to be lost if we break the Sabbath because that comes into the category of sins, of acts. If our sin state is covered, our acts of sin are allowable and acceptable if we still maintain our belief in Jesus Christ. He concludes, Justification is what Christ did for me 2,000 years ago. Well, that isn't what happening, what's happening in me today, is it? That's what he did for me 2,000 years ago. It is complete, perfect, and imputed to me when I place my faith in him. Sanctification is what Jesus does in me day by day. So all of this is sanctification. What Jesus did in me day by day, starting with the new birth experience, it is incomplete and is imparted to me as I grow in him. So I hope you caught all those things. They're very important. That sanctification is the new birth and is incomplete as long as we live. What year? 1995, when he was the editor. All right. Let's see. I'm going to skip through some of the things here. The issue, very simply now, is the issue of whether legal justification includes experiential or is it limited to just legal justification. Let's see. Let's see how what Ellen White says fits into all of this. Remember now, we're still back on the conditions of salvation. Are there conditions to salvation? 1888 Materials, page 1477. Obedience is the first price of eternal life. The first price of eternal life. Signs of the Times, November 15, 1899. Implicit obedience is the condition of salvation. The condition of salvation. Bible Commentary, Volume 7, 920. It is perfect obedience to all of God's commandments that opens to him the gates to the holy city. That opens the gates 
Bible Commentary, Volume 7, 972. The gospel that is to be preached to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people presents the truth in clear lines showing that obedience is the condition of gaining eternal life. Condition. Upward Look 189. Christ died to evidence to the sinner that there was no hope for him while he continued in sin. Obedience to all God's requirements is his only hope for pardon through the blood of Christ. In Heavenly Places 146, by perfect obedience to the requirements of the law, man is justified. Only through faith in Christ is such obedience possible. The kinds of things we're reading my, here, my friends, understand now how out of step this is with understandings of salvation today. Back in 1950, before the discussions of um, the evangelical leaders with the Seventh-day Adventist leaders in the 56-57 period, Barnhouse, the editor of, of Eternity magazine, reviewed the book Steps to Christ. Now, I'm going to guess that all of you feel positive about the book Steps to Christ. That's one book that you don't get very negative, many negative responses to. As he reviewed the book, his conclusion was, it is false in all its parts. No bones. It is false in all its parts. Can you begin to see why an evangelical scholar would say that? Because everything she's talking about here totally destroys the idea that legal justification covers our state of sin and then we can continue to do some sins and be accepted by Jesus Christ. She talks way too much about obedience. She talks way too much about surrender. She talks way too much about conditions of salvation. For the evangelical mind and the evangelical gospel, salvation must be unconditional or it is legalism in human works for the evangelical mind. And anything which puts something that we do into the picture, such as repentance, such as surrender, such as obedience, comes right back into legalism in their mind. And they do not believe that there are conditions to salvation, and they do not believe that our sins cause us to lose that salvation. That is just out of place in their understanding. But again, from Ellen White, this one from... Signs of the Times, June 16, 1890. God's promises are all made upon conditions. While we earnestly endeavor to be obedient. Now the word is endeavor there, you see. It is the, it is the, the, the condition is not that we have obeyed everything, but that our endeavor is to be obedient. God will hear our petitions, but He will not bless us in disobedience. He will not. Here's an interesting letter that came in to one of our papers. Salvation involves a transaction. But the author of the article that this person is responding to would apparently exclude from this transaction my genuine sorrow for personal failures, my repentance, even my growing faith in God's uncompromising grace, because those are all things I do. So that can't be part of the salvation transaction. Granted, my sorrow, my repentance, my faith are not the means of my salvation. However, the Bible is clear that my sorrow for sin, my repentance, and my faith in God's grace are preconditions for God forgiving my sins on the basis of His grace. As we talked about last night, let me summarize again. There is a big difference between a condition and a cause. A cause is what 
gives us salvation. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. A condition is something we must do to receive that gift of salvation. It has no merit. It does not cause us to be saved. No Sabbath keeping will allow us to be saved. But if our hearts are convicted about the seventh day Sabbath, obedience to the Sabbath is a condition of salvation. And it cannot be reduced and put aside and set aside as something not too important, not too relevant. Interesting little thing I came across. Ellen White did not reprove Jones and Wagoner very often. But she did on occasion when she felt there was a little hitch here that needed to be corrected. Here was a letter to Brother A.T. Jones. Uh, you find it in Selected Messages, Volume 1, 377 to 379. In vision, she said, I was attending a meeting and a large congregation were present. In my dream, you were presenting the subject of faith and the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith. You repeated several times that works amounted to nothing, that there were no conditions. The matter was presented in that light that I knew minds would be confused and would not receive the correct impression in reference to faith and works, and I decided to write to you. There are conditions to our receiving justification and sanctification and the righteousness of Christ. I know your meaning. I see Jones really did try to make his meaning clear. He was saying, your works don't contribute. They're not a cause of your salvation. I know your meaning. But you leave a wrong impression upon many minds. While good works will not save even one soul, yet it is impossible for even one soul to be saved without good works. There you have it, cause and condition. Good works don't save, but without them there is no salvation. Cause and condition. She said, you look in reality upon these subjects as I do. She said, we understand these things the same way, you and I. Yet you make these subjects, through your expressions, confusing to minds. After you have expressed your mind radically in regard to works, when questions are asked you upon this subject, since it is not organized in very clear lines in your own mind, you cannot define the correct principles to other minds. And you cannot, and you are unable to make your states, statements harmonize with your own principles and faith. So when you say there are no conditions and some expressions are made quite broad, you burden the minds. Interesting. And some cannot see consistency in your expressions. They cannot see how they can harmonize these expressions with the plain statements of the Word of God. Please guard these points. These strong assertions in regard to works never make our position any stronger. For there are many who will consider you an extremist and will lose the rich lessons upon the very subjects they need to know. That was Ellen White's reproof to Brother Jones. He was erring on the side of removing conditions and saying, good works have nothing to do with salvation. And Ellen White said, no, no, I know what you mean, but you're saying it in a way that will confuse minds. And I'm afraid that's what we've been reading in the last few minutes from these statements here. Confusion is becoming rampant. Is Sabbath keeping necessary for salvation? Can I commit adultery and be saved? What if I'm killed in the act of committing adultery? Etc., etc., etc. And on the questions go that never seem to have any kind of answers that will satisfy. Going to read one more statement from the Spirit of Prophecy on this point. Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 366. 
But while God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience through active living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. Has she just answered the problem of David right there? Before we can come to Christ, surrender is necessary. In order to retain justification, obedience is necessary. Was David obedient? Obviously not. Then he loses his justification while he defies God in disobedience. That's the only possible understanding. The only way to retain justification is by continual obedience. Marshall Grossball, when he was alive, said something that was worth hearing. Satisfying a condition is far different from earning salvation. We've got to get this clear. Suppose I were very rich and you were very poor. And because I really loved you, I gave you a $10 million check. Now, there would be nothing that most of us could do to earn that money, but there would be at least one condition. You would have to go to the bank and cash the check. Is that a condition? Yes, it is. Could you imagine someone saying, you mean I have to go all the way to the bank to get this money? Well, then it is not a gift. If I have to go to the bank, I've earned it. Yet some people think that way about the gift of salvation. They illogically overthrow all the conditions of salvation, assuming that such parameters constitute sinful works. Thus, they delude themselves into thinking that they are saved unconditionally when they most assuredly are lost. My friends, the biggest danger facing Adventism today is not legalism. Maybe it once was. Maybe there was a time in which legalism was our major, major power. But our major problem today is not that. It's false assurance. I'm okay. I've been accepted. I've been saved. When there are still known, known rebellions in our lives that we're not surrendering to Jesus Christ. Let me try it another way because this has got to become clear or we will be confused. The space flights that go up aren't quite as exciting as they were back when, you know. But we still get them on the news. Usually, well, there went another one up and we find out a day later. But we still hear about them. Okay. What is the cause for space flight? Is it the gear that the astronauts put on? All that stuff that they wear. With the helmets and the, and the body she, uh, 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 armor that they wear to keep from, from destroying in outer space. What is the cause for space travel, for getting that rocket into space? Is it not the engines that fire that motor based on the fuel that is in the engine that causes that rocket to lift off into space? Suppose the astronauts would say, I want to go into space. I want to travel in space. But boy, up there at the top of that thing, that's pretty risky business. I don't know if I want to get into that little space capsule on top of that power bomb that's under it. I'll just stay over here in the bunker and then I'll go into space. Because the engine is firing and that's the cause. I, I have no, nothing to do. I can't make it go into space. And so it's better to stay over here and then that will be the way I can travel into space problem there isn't there it's not going to happen we're going nowhere 
All right, here we are now. The astronauts fully realize that to go into space, they actually have to do something. They have to put the gear on. They have to climb. They have to go up the elevators, and then they have to walk across a very narrow catwalk to get into that space capsule and strap themselves in for who knows what will happen. And sometimes it doesn't work well. Most of the time it works well. Are those causes of space travel? All that they just did? Did that cause them to go into space? Not a bit of it. They, you see, if the engine wasn't operating properly, and you've seen this happen, they can sit up there for 24 hours and go nowhere. They've done all the right things. And there they sit, arms folded, the engines aren't working, and they get really tired of sitting. And finally they walk back across the catwalk. So you see, two things have to be in place for space travel. The power of the engines working correctly and the conditions met to move into the place where space travel is possible. You see, space travel is not possible over here. It is not possible over there. It is possible only on top of the engines. That's the only place you go into space. Condition of space travel. Salvation is not possible just because God loves you. Salvation is not possible because Jesus died for you. Salvation is possible only by being in the place and doing the things where God's grace can impact you. God's grace is the cause of salvation. It is the means of salvation. But the conditions of salvation, as we just read, are very simple. Surrender, willingness to obey, commitment, repentance. All of those are conditions of salvation. Conditions different from cause. And yet we're told all of this gets us into legalism. I found a nice, simple little article on legalism in Ministry Magazine. Just simple statements. Legalism is not the law. Legalism is not obedience. Legalism is a counterfeit way of salvation. Let's not get confused on the word legalism. It's not the Ten Commandments. That's what the most, most of the Christian world says. Legalism is believing in the Ten Commandments and following the Ten Commandments. No, it is not. It is not obedience to the law. Legalism is saying, I've got enough human ability in me that I can do pretty well, thank you. I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not like that publican over there. I'm pretty good in myself. That's legalism. A counterfeit way of salvation, it is the denial of our helplessness and our inability to find salvation. Came across another interesting thing. This is a little book called A Testament of Devotion, which is a Quaker book. And it's written by Meister Eckhart, long time ago. He said, this life that intends complete obedience without any reservations, we, you commit your lives in unreserved obedience to him. The life of obedience is a holy life, a separated life, cut off from worldly compromises, stainless as the snows upon the mountaintops. They who walk in obedience, on them God's holiness takes hold as a mastering passion of life. Wow, wouldn't that be legal, labeled as legalism by a whole lot of Christians today? legalism or just the opposite total surrender and obedience to Jesus Christ total willingness to do it his way and not our way and not the way that people think it should work all right one other thing needs to be addressed right now and that is the assurance of salvation the assurance of salvation today do I have the assurance of salvation are we assured of salvation 
because Jesus died on the cross. Are we assured of salvation because Jesus died on the cross? How many people did he die for? How many are alive because he died? Not quite as loud. You sure? How many are alive today because Jesus died on the cross? All right. How many have choices between salvation and damnation because Jesus died on the cross? All right. Does that include Hitler? Or anyone else you can think of? All right. Jesus died for Hitler as much as he died for you and me. Exactly the same. No difference. He provided everything for Hitler that he provides for you and me. No difference. His death on the cross for all men. Does that mean that I have the assurance of salvation today because Jesus died on the cross? It does not. Because Hitler, as best we can tell, is not going to be part of that experience. Is our assurance of salvation dependent on, is it because, are we assured of our salvation because God loves us unconditionally? He does. He loves us unconditionally. Prodigal son and the father. Didn't the father continue to love the son all the way through that experience? Unconditional love. That's the father in heaven. Are we in a saving relationship? Are we righteous before God? Have we assurance of salvation because God loves us unconditionally? Did he love Judas unconditionally? Yes, he did. So you see, these great truths about Jesus and the Father. God loves us unconditionally. Jesus died on the cross for all men are used as the basis for saying, if I accept and believe that, I have the assurance of salvation. But you know, that's the key thing. What is accept and believe? The devils also believe, and what do they do? They tremble. The devils believe that Jesus died on the cross, and that is going to seal their doom. The devils believe that God in heaven is running his universe fairly effectively. They believe all of that, but they have no salvation. The only way you and I can have the assurance of salvation is if we combine the unconditional love of God and the death of Christ on the cross for all mankind with total surrender to Him without any reservations. Condition. Cause, condition. Without surrender, that's why Judas is lost. That's what happened to Hitler. Without surrender, everything God does for us means nothing for our salvation. Nothing for eternal life. And that's the serious mistake of modern Christian theology. To say that because of these things, God unconditionally accepts us as well as loves us. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to say this. I would love to deal with devil's advocate positions and any questions that come up, write them down. 
and let's have a question and answer period so that everybody can hear the questions and we can deal with it directly. So please keep that question. I want to deal with it, whatever it is, but I dare not because this is being transcribed and recorded right now and we will never progress any farther than this if we open up the questions at this time. So hold on, please. Um, listen to this from... Faith and Works 15 to 28. We cannot have the assurance and perfect confiding trust in Christ as our Savior until we acknowledge Him as our King and are obedient to His commandments. Notice that carefully. When can we have the assurance and perfect confiding trust in Christ? When we are obedient to His commandments. It is a working faith, she says. So there is no faith without working, without being real, without being experienced. And the whole section on faith and works is very important right there. And then I like this statement from uh, Clifford Goldstein. Maybe it's time we stop our navel-gazing, obsession with assurance, and instead seek power on high for victory over the sins that so often cause us to question our salvation to begin with. I do believe we've gotten into that mode in recent years in the Adventist church. Am I saved? Do I have the assurance I'm saved? That is the basic question of all Christianity and of all Adventism. Above all other things, we need to have the assurance of salvation. That's what we've been hearing for 10, 15, 20 years now. And he says, maybe it's time we stop that navel-gazing. I agree. There is something bigger than assurance of salvation. And that is loyalty to the one we believe is right and vindication of his name by our lives and words. That's why we should be obedient, not because of something else. Interesting little um, thing I came across here. An average, this was a survey done in the Adventist church, an average of 63% said they have an intimate relationship with Christ. 63%, two-thirds, not bad. 73% report they have assurance of eternal life. 73%, and then 34% study the Bible daily, and 33% have family worship. Wow. Discrepancy? Two-thirds and almost three-fourths say they have the assurance of eternal life, and one-third study the Bible. Something isn't quite right there. And he suggested, the one who did the, uh, reported this said, we're floundering in a sea of apostasy, making Christ in our own image, customized to fit the demands and clamorings of the carnal nature. And we might have a serious possibility of a direct fulfillment of Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Do you know what that says? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And he will say, who are you? What was your name again? I didn't have you in my, in my radar scope. Didn't know who you were. Um, someone wrote in very well, Satan is working with great zeal to get people to have a false sense of assurance. That is his best deception, a false sense of assurance. I'm okay. 
You know what Ellen White wrote about those who will be living at the very end of time, who will be sealed with God's seal? If we understand that correctly, they will not be sinning. They will not be rebelling against God. They will be living through the time of the seven last plagues, she says in Great Controversy, page 619. If they could have, these are the sealed sinless ones, if they could have the assurance of pardon, they would not shrink from torture or death, but should they prove unworthy and lose their lives because of their own defects of character, then God's holy name would be reproached. The most perfect people that will ever live on this earth, the most mature Christians that have ever lived on this earth, living through a time when there's no mediator in the courts of heaven, when the sanctuary system is shut down, those people wish to have the assurance of pardon. And they're afraid that they will dishonor God's name. They're not afraid they're going to be lost. They're afraid that what they do and say will dishonor God's name. Their own character defects will be dishonoring God's name. And they pray for the assurance of pardon. So if those people even will ask for assurance at that time, maybe it isn't the most critical thing even for us today. Now, I will agree on one point with this assurance. We need to have the confidence that Jesus has forgiven us our sins. We need to have the confidence that we have surrendered our life and He has come into our life. We need to have the confidence that if I should die right now, I would be safe in His hands. I believe in having that confidence. But to stress over and over that the only important thing is my assurance of salvation is asking a good question at the wrong time. It's a good question. It's just now, that's not the question to be asking. The question to be asking now, if we want to be sealed with the seal of God, is is what I am saying, doing, or thinking, vindicating God or Satan? Am I casting my vote on God's side or Satan's side by the music I'm listening to, by what I'm watching, by the books I'm reading? Is it telling the truth about God's way or is it telling the truth about Satan's way? Not my salvation. I'm not going to make that an issue. I want to know if it's telling the truth about God or Satan. That's the issue. My salvation and my assurance is way down the level from that kind of question. And that's why at the end of time, those who are struggling through this experience will not be worrying about their own salvation. They will be worrying about God's vindication. Almost done. Just one more thing, and then uh, I'll just write it up because we will begin right here where we leave off. What is the evangelical concept of all of this. We have referred to it on various points, but now let's address it particularly. Evangelicals believe in and accept sanctification. They do not deny sanctification. They believe it. They believe it follows justification. Evangelicals believe in obedience. Check it out. Who are the ones in our country that are calling for obedience to God's law more stridently than any other? The evangelical world. Put it on our walls of our judicial system, the Ten Commandments of God. Make it mandatory, not optional, etc., on various points, whether it's abortion or anything else. Evangelicals believe in obedience to God's law. That's not the issue. However, they believe that sanctification, which is the real obedience, which takes care of these acts of sin, is not, to, is not the way of salvation, it's the result of salvation. So that's the first point. 
that sanctification is the result of being saved, not a cause of being saved, and not necessary for salvation. David is saved while disobedient. But yes, God wants him to be disobedient, and he wants to be obedient. Sanctification. So, sanctification is a result of, not a part, or a cause of salvation. First point. Second point, sanctification will never be 100% effective while we live in a fallen nature on this earth. So while the evangelical world and the evangelical gospel stresses obedience and it stresses sanctification, it takes sanctification out of the realm of being saved, puts it later than salvation. Thus, you can be saved while not really sanctified fully. And they say sanctification can't be realized fully as long as we have a fallen nature. Thus, there will be some sinning until Jesus comes. Here is a way that it is phrased by an individual. How my Creator, my Savior, can love me and promise me salvation when I am selfish, sometimes angry, sarcastic, cynical, unlovely. But what I do and don't do has nothing to do with whether or not He has accepted me. So I can be selfish, angry, sarcastic, cynical, and unlovely, and I am accepted and I have salvation. That is the evangelical view of salvation. Interesting thing I came across, remorse, repentance, and confession are therapeutic and necessary for spiritual and psychological health, but they are the result of forgiveness perceived and received. That's an interesting twist, that repentance and confession are the result of being forgiven. You're forgiven before you repent. You are forgiven because you accept Jesus as your Savior. Then you'll repent later on in sanctification. That is totally opposite of what the Bible says as I read it. Repentance precedes forgiveness. Forgiveness does not precede repentance. Ellen White, without regeneration through faith in his blood, there is no remission of sins. Pretty simple. Without regeneration through faith, there is no remission of sins. Christ's Object Lessons 112 and 113. All right. Justification, basic statement, legal experiential, problems that have come up regarding justification in the Seventh-day Adventist church in the last 30 years. We'll close it right there. Going to take a break. What is 4:30? I hit it pretty close, didn't I? 4:30, we'll close our meeting with a brief prayer and then we'll have a 10-minute break. And then Matthew will have some new material, not shown before, never seen before, and uh, for about 20 minutes, and then we'll start our last meeting. Let's just bow. Father in heaven, we thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for salvation, but Lord, help us not to cheapen it by simply saying you will tolerate our sinning while we are saved. Help us to have a full and complete and costly acceptance by Jesus Christ. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.